Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we are fortunate enough to have our good friend Adam Kinzinger back on the podcast, first time in 2022. So first of all, Happy New Year, uh, Congressman. Yeah, thanks. Back at you. And by the way, I, I like doing the podcast. The thing I don't like is... Now I can't listen to it today because I don't like hearing myself. So, you know, I got to find a different podcast for my run today. Yeah, I'm, I'm I am sorry. I, I do apologize for that. Okay, well, <laughs> let, 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 let's start off this way before we get into other stuff. Tell us who who is Ray Epps. Tell me the <laughs> Ray Epps story. It's funny because so this this started to pop up. Oh, man, I'd say kind of November. And it was part of this whole you know, conspiracy that it's really the FBI behind January 6th. And there was a guy and we probably, you know, without people realizing, they probably saw the video. He was standing around outside on January 5th and made the, he had a MAGA hat on and he was like, you know, we're going into the Capitol, into the Capitol. And then some people started chanting fed, fed, fed. Well, that was now the huge evidence. And he was on video a few other times. I don't know a ton. I don't know everything about him because he's not a high-level player. We The committee has interviewed him. But basically, he was put on the FBI's most wanted list. They had a conversation, from what I understand, and they took him off. The guy basically, as far as I know, did not, did not go into the Capitol, break the law, and it was just kind of a, okay, now he's going back to his life. And the reason it's so important to take this on is he has been – shown to be, quote unquote, a federal agent. And now what they do, so Tucker and all these people, they do things like they intermittently change, you know, federal agent with confidential informant. By the way, there's very different. Those are very different things. But according to Ray Epps' own testimony, he's had no involvement with law enforcement whatsoever. And we have to put that out there to discredit because that is the that has been the kind of quote unquote hard evidence that started with Marjorie Taylor Greene, spread to Tucker Carlson, and of course was quote unquote mainstream by Ted Cruz um, Tuesday in his uh, conversation. Yeah, so Ted Cruz is asking, who is Ray Epps? Is is that why the committee decided to release the information that they talked to Epps and that there was no evidence whatsoever? He had no ties to. Is is that why the statement went out? Yeah, blow, that, blow it up. yeah, basically, that's a moment when you look and you go, look, we've we've got to address this head on. I've been watching the whole Ray Epps scandal since it started. And so, you know, I personally thought this is something we should address early. I've come to believe that, you know, conspiracy theories, you don't wait till they're big. You, you get them in their infancy because they they basically grow into, quote unquote, known fact, you know, very quickly on the very quickly. on the blogosphere. And we have to we have to look at this differently than we did 10 or 20 years ago. So you, you've been asking on Twitter that various other political figures who have toyed around with this, uh, do you think you still think that Ray Epps is a federal agent? Because you have, you're, you know what, you're trying to hold him accountable for that. That's right. I mean, you know, if you're going to go out and, you know, quote unquote, just ask questions. OK, that's one thing. If you're going to ask questions implying that Ray Epps is a federal agent. Why was Ray Epps taken off the most wanted poster? Let me, first off, no matter what you say about the FBI, I don't think they're dumb enough to put their own agent on a wanted poster for months. But, you know, okay, let's put that aside. I think it's important for whether you're running for office or whether you're, uh, you know, an influencer. If you start throwing crap like this out, you have to be held accountable to it. You have to answer. You can circular argument with me all you want on Twitter. The fact of the matter is you made the claim 
that Ray Epps is a federal agent. And it was proof that the FBI incited January 6th, not to mention the fact that, you know, you have to think very low of your voters to think that, you know, one man can basically incite an entire insurrection. Uh, that's a, that's an FBI agent, you know, not, and it can't be the fault of the president who led up to the whole conspiracy theory and then incited them from the pulpit. So yeah, they have to be held accountable to that. And, you know, they do a great job, Tucker, especially, of when one conspiracy he pushes is disproven, he just moves on to the next one. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, people are overwhelmed with lies and information. They just choose instead to trust one person because there's so much conflicting information out there. It's hard to do your own work. I just want to stick with this for a moment. Uh, Philip Bump at the Washington Post has a piece up, uh, you know, another January 6th conspiracy theory suffers a reality inflicted blow and he writes, measured in Fox News airtime, there is perhaps no January 6th conspiracy theory more popular than the idea that federal agents helped spur the violence that overwhelmed the Capitol on January 6, 2021. And within that particular theory, no individual has received more attention than Ray Epps, an Arizona man who has been identified as the person encouraging a crowd supporting President Trump on January 5th to enter the Capitol the following day and who appeared near the scene of the first barrier breach. To Tucker Carlson and his followers, including members of the House and Senate, that Epps was never arrested is a strong indicator that he was a federal agent who was at the scene specifically to gin up evidence. Here's how Senator Ted Cruz pressed the case in a hearing Tuesday afternoon, asking questions of an FBI representative who is Ray Epps. Um, FBI official said, I'm aware of the individual. I don't have the specific background. And then Cruz goes, well, there are a lot of people who are understandably very concerned about Mr. Epps. So then the committee issues that basically says, we've talked to him, we've taken his testimony, he's not. So how how long had you had that information? I guess, I guess I'm getting at that you guys have a lot of stuff that we don't yet know about, right? I mean, yeah. th this you, you've known about Epps actually for some time now, right? Yeah, and and look, I I'll just be clear. I think we should have put the information out earlier because again, I you know as somebody that watches this, and it's really an advantage that Liz and I have on the committee is the ability to see kind of we live in different realities, right? right. So you know, and so we can see the stuff that starts bubbling early on. And uh, but yeah, I was interviewed back in November. It was a kind of a, a informal interview, we'll call it. And, uh, and, you know, it was clear that it, according to his own admission, this guy was really uh, a bit player, no, no more of a player than the other 25,000 or whoever people that weren't arrested that were there. I mean, boy, if you took, you know, and this is kind of the response now that they've been caught is saying, well, he, he said to go into the Capitol and, you know, that's what the president said, go into the Capitol and you impeached him over it. Well, it's very different when you're the president. You create a case leading up to January 6th, then you incite from the pulpit, then you tweet. You know, we could go on and on. It's very different than somebody caught up in the emotion of the moment. And at no point have I said or anybody said, quite honestly, that all the 20 some thousand people at January 6th should be arrested. We recognize that the vast majority were simply, you know, following through on their first amendment right. The difference is when you breach, destroy and try to disrupt the legal counting of votes that is a constitutional driven thing, that's when you cross the line. So, let's talk about this crisis of accountability though. And I know that's something that your committee is going to have to deal with. Uh, we have hundreds of people who had believed the big lie 
you know, many of them, I think, sincerely believe the big lie who went into the Capitol and many of them now been charged. And yet none of the instigators or the people who perpetrated the lie have yet been held accountable. There is a disparity there. How do we address that? You know, I, I, you know, you, 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 you undoubtedly have, you know, seen that quote. I used it in my newsletter from Abraham Lincoln. You know, must I shoot a simple-minded soldier boy who deserts, while I must not touch a hair of the wily agitator who mm. induces him to desert? Right. I mean, this is kind of where we're at now. It's a great point, and you know, it's been a, a frustration from what is DOJ doing? They have the law enforcement capability. Obviously, Congress can't arrest anybody. We can't file criminal charges. We can get information. But here's a big thing to consider. So I, I do think you know the DOJ has done a good job of those they have in custody basically pressing about as max of the cases they can against them. But there was an interesting thing that's happened. Which is after January 6th, you know, we heard about all these people that were arrested that had remorse, you know, sad about what they did, got caught up in, in you know, the violence and everything. But what you do is you built around them in the last year a media ecosystem convincing each one of these people, for instance, in jail – that what they did was actually heroic. Keep in mm -hmm. mind, you know, on the one hand, the conspiracy is the FBI did this. On the other hand, what they did was very heroic and patriotic. When you convince people in jail um, that they are actually, you know, standard bearers for conservatism and for the American Constitution, that is going to take away any incentive to cooperate with DOJ. And that's what DOJ has seen is all of a sudden a collapse in cooperation by these 700 because now they would be turning the back on the Constitution of the United States. That's an important point to remember is this coddling ecosystem that reinforces to these folks that they are actually heroes. And of course, even though they're in jail, they have the same access to the news and, and talk shows that we do. So give me a sense of how the committee is going based on the kind of evidence and information you have already gotten. I mean, we 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 know that some of the people who are refusing to testify and cooperate, but but based on what you already have, how confident are you that you're going to be able to present a complete and compelling picture of who did what and knew what when? Look, I, I'm convinced we're, that if today, if the yeah. investigation ended, we could present that compelling hmm. picture. Okay? Today. okay. Yeah, today. The problem is, you know, is it going to be enough to convince 30% of the country? Probably not because, I, you know, I don't know if there is anything that can convince certain folks. But what what I think is just as important, and obviously as, as the days go on with this investigation, we'll have more proof to back up narratives, not just one witness, maybe multiple witnesses, et cetera. But what's more important to me, although I wish it was different, is not even so much, okay, we're going to give the narrative to these people and hope they change their mind. It's that when their kids are in school in five or 10 years, those kids have the truth and they can look and be like, hey, mom and dad, did you believe this stuff? And mom and dad would have to lie and say, oh, no, I never believed it. That's insane. That's what I think the role of the committee is, is making sure that we interdict the conspiracy cycle, you know, your podcast, I think it was Tuesday about mm -hmm. civil war. Yeah. But we interdict that civil war cycle and uh, and change that. That is the important point of this committee. But I certainly hope those 30 percent or whatever it is uh, are can see the, the facts and are convinced. 
Well, do you think that the the intent is also to come out, though, with with tangible recommendations, number one, on perhaps legislation to trump-proof the system um, from the kind of coup that we saw or potential coup that we saw? And then number two, you know, whether or not there is um, legal accountability for, say, the former president. Let's ask, first of all, you know, about legislation. Uh, How confident are you that that um, Congress might be able to trump proof the next presidential election? I'm not confident at all. I mean, you know, I wish I was. Uh, and and that is a stated goal of the committee is to, you know, have legislative recommendations. The The problem I see is, you know, the Democrats are focused on their voting rights acts, which, you know, we can we can argue, we can debate those. Uh, there's merits to some of them, uh, not merits to other parts of it. But none of that would have done anything for January 6th. None of yeah. that will we'll interdict the cycle in 2024. That is the Electoral Count Act. I think things like right. clarifying the role of the vice president, clarifying that, you know, if the ballots, for instance, are stolen, the, you know, the original ballots, that doesn't throw us into a constitutional crisis. That's how you can, in the short term, interdict 2024. In the long term, man, we've got to, and I don't know the answer to this, we've got to focus on on proofing how we count ballots and proofing, you know, I don't even think it's the how, because I think we're doing it fine, but making sure that there is confidence in that. So circling back to the question of, of the Trump and accountability, uh, we don't know what the Department of Justice is going to do, but some of the things that your colleague Liz Cheney has said publicly certainly have been have implied that there might be some interest in asking whether or not there might have been some dereliction of, uh, you know, of, of official duties or or some other um, legal way in which Donald Trump could be held a- accountable. Will that be part of the committee's final deliberations and recommendations? I, I think certainly if we have information that that we think, and again, obviously, but it just bears repeating, we can't enforce that. But right. if we have information that we think is important for DOJ, absolutely. I think we can we can just kind of take a step back to about 20,000 feet and say, there's no doubt Trump had a dereliction of duty. The question is, was it criminal? And I think the key point to that, you know, for three hours, he basically did nothing but watch television while the insurrection was happening. I would argue that that is a violation of his oath to defend the Constitution of the United States. I would argue that in the best case scenario, that is incompetence or that is, you know, he's just he's frozen with indecision. In the worst case scenario, he obviously knew this was coming. So that would be the worst case scenario. I'm not leveling the accusation yet um, and and hoped it succeeded. That would be the difference. The first scenario and second would probably be the difference between criminal, you know, liability with that versus just this guy violated his oath. And uh, but there's no doubt Donald Trump violated his oath. And I think he did that the second he started questioning publicly on Twitter and otherwise the legitimacy of an election because he undermined that basic contract in democracy that has to exist. The far left and far right, which were actually the same people anyway, but, you know, (laughs) the right and left, they have to agree on one thing. That's it. One thing that their vote counts and that the results are accurate. That's all you have to agree on. Everything else can be handled in the political realm. So let's talk about your colleague, Jim Jordan, who uh, initially indicated that he was going to cooperate with the committee. He's no stranger to congressional investigations now saying he's not. And his lawyers are raising questions about the constitutionality of 
uh, your your committee's push for his testimony because he should be completely exempt and immune from any proceedings involving how does it read in the Constitution? You know the yeah, the, the, the business of, of Congress. So your your thoughts on Jim Jordan saying he's not going to cooperate with uh, the body of which he's a member? Yeah, I mean, look on the without going into the I'll go yeah. into constitutional yeah. part in a sec, but on the broader point. I mean, this is a guy that has been at the helm of so many congressional investigations. He recognizes the role of Congress in investigating legitimate issues because he's done it. He knows better. And, you know, if you're look, if you truly believe in the institution of Congress, and I don't think he does, if you truly believe in the institution, you recognize that even if you disagree with what a committee is doing, the fact that it passed and it was formed makes it a legitimate inquiry of the American people. So he obviously has contempt for Congress. That is important to note when probably more than likely Republicans take the majority and Kevin McCarthy will be forced to make him some you know guy, some dude. And, uh, and he tries to do the same thing. On the constitutional question, we've got all the lawyers, uh, which I am not, looking into this because there is legitimate questions about issues of speech and debate, about what Congress can compel of its own members. Uh, but we think, and and you know, if there if there is a path to compel testimony, certainly we will do that because uh, look, the American American people have a right to know. If Jim Jordan has nothing to hide, come in and tell us he has nothing to hide. Prove it. What is uh, the status of Mike Pence's cooperation with the committee? So it's, you know, I've, I've read or heard kind of the accounts in the media that he doesn't want to cooperate. I, I don't know the veracity or the truth of those. His uh, staff is obviously very cooperative. I don't want to go into specific names, but um, they've been providing a lot of information, a lot of stuff that leads to other threads to pull. Because, look, I mean, if I'm Mike Pence, I'm looking and saying history – could actually adjudicate his role on January 6th quite well. Right. Um, he, he should he should want that out there. Um, if the guy actually does intend to run for president someday, uh, I got to tell you, this whole insurrection business is not going to age well in the long term. And so I, I certainly hope he's, he's not pulling back on his cooperation. I'm sure we're going to know that probably more in the next week or two. So your committee will be having televised public hearings should we expect any to learn anything that we don't know now? Are there going to be any surprises? Will there be any moments that you think might actually change the sort of political stasis we're in over January 6th? Yeah, I think I would compare what, what might happen at these committees to Liz Cheney's reading the text out loud, you know, kind mm -hmm. of revelations. I mean, I, I don't know if there's ever going to be a moment where we get a Donald Trump handwritten memo that we need to overthrow the, you know, the goodwill of the United States people. But I think when you see behind the scenes, the level of planning, the, the discussions that were happening, quite honestly, you know, the, the, the broadness of the discussions of people like Sean Hannity with folks in the White House, um, that's going to be pretty compelling and shocking to people. Will it change somebody's mind that says, no matter what is presented to me, I already have my outcome? Probably not. But I think the biggest thing we have to keep in mind is we can be depressed about the state of the Republican Party, which I certainly am. But when you still have 60, 65, 70 percent of the American people, which is way too low, but saying the election was legitimate, that 70 percent is enough of a bulwark. There you go. Mm -hmm. uh, enough of a bulwark to defend future elections. Now, if you go to violence and all that kind of stuff, obviously it's different. But I think we should sometimes celebrate that number and say, you know, the audience isn't necessarily the people that will never believe. 
the audiences, those that are going to go turn out and vote and, uh, you know, would never stand for another insurrection. So I've been, you know, following some of the interviews and the discussions that you had and, uh, you, you tell me whether I'm I'm misreading this, okay? But mm-hmm. it, it 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 strikes me that you, like a lot of us, are have been going through this process of trying to figure out what the hell happened to us. Yeah. How did we get here? Um, and I can tell you're kind of working it through. You know, you're talking about. I mean, because the reality is, is that this Republican Party that we see right now didn't just flip in the last no. few years. It's been building for a long time. And I I know you're going back and thinking, okay, what, how long was this going on? Mm. What did I miss? Who is responsible for all of this? Is is that that a fair reading of what's what's going on with you now? It's really fair. Here's, here's my theory and it could be wrong, but I think there's some certain inflection points. People talk a lot generically about the Tea Party movement. I'm less of an attacker of the Tea Party from 2010 to 2012. I think 2010 to 2012 I mean, I went to a Tea Party rally that had 10,000 people that in, in Chicago. That was basically pissed off Republicans, okay? Mm-hmm. After the election, after we took the majority, uh, the Tea Parties dwindled to maybe 200 people and then eventually 50 in 10, right? So this was the hardcore of the hardcore, the people that had been rejected from kind of mainstream conservatism that basically took on the moniker of Tea Party. Here's an example. I never right. once ever in my in my campaign in 2010 did I promise to not raise the debt limit. I never promised that. That's the stupidest mm-hmm. promise you can make. And yet in 2012, the Tea Party basically demanded fealty to never raising the debt limit. They started to get angrier. That's when you had people like the Freedom Club pop up that basically Mm -hmm. destroyed good chances to move conservative legislation because it wasn't conservative enough. And I think that combined with what started out as a somewhat legitimate grievance, we don't get a fair shake in the media. We didn't get a fair shake in the media. I would remind people we still won 50% of elections somehow. Yeah. That was harnessed into things like, okay, the media hates us. The media is the devil. The media is the enemy. Over time, that builds into a whole new right-wing media ecosystem that reaffirms everything people believe. And I think then Donald Trump came along both as a symptom and as an accelerant. He was a symptom of the problem, but he accelerated crushing through norms, right? You know, a president can't do this. He did it. A president can't say this. He would say it. And I think, you know, I, I think there's historians probably that can point to other things prior to 2010. But from my involvement from 2010 on, those are key points. No, I think th- I think that that is that is fair. In fact, you probably could go even you know further back to that. I'm I keep going back sometimes to things that Newt Gingrich did, uh, the role of Sarah yeah. Palin. But you know, you mentioned the, the the Tea Party, and I I've quoted this many many times before, but I think it's just so apt. Is you know what Eric Hoffer said that every cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a oh, racket. Yeah. And I saw the same thing. I the Tea Party starts off as kind of this populist movement and by the time um, you know the next election cycle rolled around, it, it really had turned into something else. It had been taken over by the grifters, the perpetual outrage industry. And can I tell so, you a quick story about it too? Go sure, ahead. I'm sorry, yeah. finish. No, but, no, no, no. Go ahead. Well, so 
right after I got elected, uh, there's an intervening period between when you're elected and then obviously when you're sworn in two or three months, I guess three months. And we, we have to go through, this is actually so stupid. We have to go through, you know, orientation. That's not stupid, but I remember I get elected taking a month off or so I'm flying with the military. I we take off, we fly a mission, I land and my phone is just exploding like a jillion text messages, everything. And basically what happened is, quote unquote, Tea Party leaders, I think it was at Ginny Beth Martin, they oh, yeah. leaked all of the freshman classes, phone numbers and email addresses on the internet and said, these guys are going to the quote unquote establishment orientation. They need <laughs> to go to the Tea Party orientation. The Tea Party had set up their own orientation in D.C., and now we had just, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry calling us, telling us we are already traitors and we need to go to the Tea Party orientation, not the establishment orientation. That, even before I was sworn in, is when I said, OK, I'm done with the Tea Party. Bye bye. It was insane. It's nuts. But they've been like that all the time. Well, you know, and Jenny Beth Martin was one of those people who sort of became the you know face of the Tea Party movement, which was really, you know, one of these, you know, outrage grift organizations. And what I remember was is that she was very, very outspokenly anti-Trump. But, you know, <laughs> when she got, you know, a sense of which way the wind was blowing, she was one of the first not only to flip over to, pro, you know, pro-Trump, but one of the most, you know, vigorous, one of the most feral Trumpists because you know, obviously this was not really about ideas. So talk to me a little bit. Also, I saw you gave an interview where you talked about the Republican Party's trust crisis. What did you mean by yeah. that? Well, you know, it's tr it's two things and I guess two T's, trust and truth. Mm -hmm. So the trust part, there is no trust, I think, between Republican leaders and the base. You know, we, we've said you've heard on the on your podcast a hundred times. You know, if you gave truth serum or CIA juice to everybody, everybody you know that's an elected Republican, they would tell you, with the exception of a couple of weirdos, probably, but they would tell you that Joe Biden won the election. Sure. But they are scared to death of their base. They don't trust that their base can handle the truth. The base doesn't trust what we're doing because obviously there's a there's a motive behind anything we say. We're just we've gone establishment or we've gone rogue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the truth thing is I think even more detrimental to the future of this country. You know, I, I, I was raised a Christian kid. I still have strong faith and I don't go to Sunday school anymore because I'm a grown up. But, you know, when I was a kid, go to Sunday school. It was the very first lesson every morning. And, and by the time you left is tell the truth. The truth matters. Even if the truth hurts, you steal something, go tell your parents you stole it. That's yeah. you're going to get punished, but it matters. We have gotten away from truth. And when you decline truth, when you when you go from, yeah, there's some gray areas and ways to interpret. But when you say things like the election is stolen and you corrode you know, the basic level of truth in this country, you cannot recover without something intervening on that cycle. And I think without base voters recognizing that they are being abused, they are being not just grifted, they're being thieved by, you know, people that send out fundraising appeals like Rand Paul, give me a hundred bucks to fire yeah. Fauci. He has no control yeah. over firing Fauci. Yeah, what the hell right. is he talking about? Um, that is, those are lies to profit. And I got to tell you, Charlie, you know, Lies if this problem. country does fall to a civil war someday, and I used to never say that, and now I mm. recognize it really is a possibility. If it happens, all these people that play war, 
They dress up. They have their cool guns. They've never seen violence in their life. All of them that are also on six or seven different heart and blood pressure medications <laughs> will be dead two weeks after the Civil War starts. Not because they got shot, because Walgreens doesn't carry their whatever they need now. And all of a sudden, war becomes real. And that's what happens when truth is destroyed. You know, you, you got, you're talking Tuesday about what could be the impetus of, of that Civil War. Yeah. I was just thinking back to Kenosha. Let's say, and by the way, every Democratic governor waits a day long, too long to, to call out the guard. So listen, all Democratic governors, if you see a riot in place, call out the guard because they they stop riots, right? And they just intimidate. Yeah. I've been part of it. Um, but let's say Kenosha, the governor never would have called in the guard. Let's say that, you know, instead Kyle Rittenhouse, instead of shooting, let's say he gets shot and killed on the street. And then let's say there's no guard reaction, and now all of a sudden you have a Wisconsin militia, an Illinois militia that decides to show up to protect people like Kyle Rittenhouse. Well, we also know the left is arming up. Let's say they see this right-wing militia on the streets of Kenosha, and they show up. You can see right there how that is the start. Of course, every news agency is following it. That is the start of real violence. How do you back up from that? Joe Biden can stand out and say, hey, everybody needs to stand down. We can't have this violence. The right says, well, Joe Biden has an interest in that. You know, you can see how a trust deficit in this country, when leaders stand up and say, hey, guys, whoa, throttle back, all of a sudden that won't work anymore. Well, and remember when that I know that we've talked about this before, but I, I do keep coming back to that memory of that of that young man who showed up at one of the uh, Charlie Kirk TPUSA events sure. and says, well, when when do we start using our guns? When do we start shooting people? And, you know, Charlie Kirk said, well, no, no, you don't want to say that because that's bad messaging, not that it's bad um, actual action. But the problem is people are playing with these ideas. They play. There's a certain amount of cosplay going on here, but it will have real world implications if you keep saying the same thing. And there are people with guns in dangerous situations. And you're, you're referencing something I asked Barbara Walter uh, on the podcast the other day, like, you know, what, what is the trigger? What is the spark? You know, some militiaman or some cop, um, you know, fires their weapon at the, at the Michigan state uh, Capitol or on January 6th. It's easy for me to see how this happens and how it spins out of control. If you listen to the rhetoric, if you listen to the, the, the rising tide of hysteria, people have already been convinced that, that in fact, it would be a patriotic or a noble thing to That's do this right. sort of thing. And at some point, you know, with, with all of the rhetoric, somebody's going to go, when do we start shooting? Yeah. I'm sorry. This is, it's going to happen. You're right. And the impetus, the impetus could happen from the second you order your Starbucks coffee till the time you finish it, you could go from being in a state of peace to a state of civil war. And, and it can happen like that. And I'll tell you, Charlie, I am a, I'm a big second amendment defender and supporter. I conceal carry wherever I go. I had a situation actually on the street in Milwaukee and North Avenue where I, I had to disarm a dude that was killing his girlfriend. I wasn't armed. And for, you know, from that moment on, I've become a believer in it. Um, and of course, then with my job today, but I don't, you know, I'll talk about it occasionally, like here. It's not something I got to, you know, lift my suit jacket up and show everybody I'm cool because I'm armed. I own an AR-15 and I don't put pictures anymore of myself with the AR-15, not because I'm against them, I'm not, but because I, too many people have taken their guns and used them as kind of, a, what do you call it, like a fetish, a gun fetish. Yeah. And, and the reality to me is as Second Amendment defenders, we should be the first people 
out saying, hey, guys, walking into the Michigan State Capitol with an AR-15 is abusing your Second Amendment right. We have to be the ones out with reasonable gun measures to say, look, if you have to be 21 to buy a pistol in this country, you should have to be 21 at least to buy an AR-15. We should be coming to the table. And instead, what we're doing is flaunting this to people. And I got to tell you, you can call the left snowflakes or whatever. If I was on the other side of people flaunting AR-15s, by the way, you know, let's say the left starts doing that someday, I would be pretty worried about that as well. Um, but instead, we just go out and flaunt our right. We're always trying to own. We're trying to spin up. And this doesn't end well. As a guy that's seen places torn with war, uh, you know, we're not genetically immune to the same kind of factors. I actually think that most gun owners would agree with you. Um, you know, back, back in the midst of time when I was a, a, a talk show host, I remembered in Wisconsin, we had a couple of moments where uh, we have, uh, you know, open constitutional open carry here. And a couple of guys showed up at some farmer's market. I think it was in Appleton, Wisconsin, with AR-15 strapped to their backs mm. and, you know, to make a point. And I remember opening up the phone lines and, th- and just asking, what do you got? What do you what do you think of this? And overwhelmingly people and I'm, I'm talking about people who are NRA members, people who are gun owners, people who are hunters and sportsmen were saying, this is crazy. This is nuts. This is not helping our cause. This is frightening people. This is doing, you know, and so there is a gap into the debate because I do think that there is this huge and unfortunately, I would say a silent majority that's afraid or has been. I don't know, just, you know, induced to go along with, with, with all of this. So on this, before we move on, I keep coming back to, you know, you're talking about truth and, and, and the big lie and what happens and why Republican politicians are afraid to tell the truth. What do you make of this whole Senator Mike Rounds episode? <laughs> where he comes and guys from, you know, South Dakota. I mean, he's not one of the firebrands, you know, I don't know anything about the guy, except he's going, no, Donald Trump lost this election. No, he's, you know, and Trump rips him, you know, threatens him, rounds isn't backing off. Even Mitch McConnell is now going, yeah, Mike rounds is, is mm-hmm. right. Are, are they like, putting their toe in the water? What, what, what do you sense is happening here? Yeah, I guess I think it's a little putting the toe in the water. It's been a freaking almost, you know, almost a year and a half since the election, a year and a quarter. It's crazy. I yeah. think they're getting sick of it. But, you know, and, and we should. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a million Twitter comments like, don't congratulate somebody for doing their job. I, you know, I'm not. I wish Rounds would have said that earlier. But let's recognize when good things happen, like recognizing basic facts. And, uh, but you know, Donald Trump's reaction has nothing to do with Mike rounds. He doesn't care about Mike. He has everything to do with trying to, trying to stem that cascade of people that have been desperate to say that, that are scared to death to say it, that might see that as some kind of a signal that they can tell their people the truth. Listen, if you're a leader in this country, you, you have to strip the title of leader if you're unwilling to tell people the truth. Yes, you've got to get elected. There is That's an important dance. It's, it's a delicate dance I can't tell you how to do, but I can tell you that if you want to be a leader, your contract is, yes, get elected, yes, represent, but your contract with the American people is to tell them the truth. Because if you have leaders that don't tell the truth, you basically don't have anything. So let me ask you about one other thing here. Uh, I'm I'm looking at the the, uh, Daily 202, the Washington Post newsletter put out by Olivier Knox. And the theme today is Republicans rally around a 2022 message, revenge. 
impeach mm. President Biden, boot House Democrats from committee assignments, subpoena top Democrats, go after Hunter Biden, put big tech out of business um, if they comply with the committee investigating the the insurrection. It does seem that that right now this is what Kevin McCarthy is is pushing. They they don't have a set of specific policies they'll enact. But the one thing that they're all all in on promising is revenge. Yeah. Your your, your thoughts about this, because this does seem to be what 2022 is going to be about now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. They've stirred anger. People are angry. And revenge is a it's a it's a palatable midterm, you know, in the minority wanting to take the majority. Uh, it's a it's a good strategy. It'll work for them. Here's the problem. I mean, the problem is you've got to have some level of like, okay, what's right and wrong. You go to any country, let's say Central South America, you go to the former Russian Soviet republics, you know, any kind of struggling or failed democracy, what do you see? You always see new people come in and arrest and per- persecute the last administration. Now, some listener is going to say, isn't that what you're doing on January 6th? No, because on January 6th, we are defending right now the integrity of that peaceful transfer of power. But what you see in so many other countries, and as a foreign affairs committee member, this is what I have to go talk to leaders of countries and try to walk them away from, is being mad that the prior president did something they didn't like, so they manufacture a reason to arrest them or to persecute their enemies. And it's why I was so outspoken when people would say things like, lock her up with Hillary, lock her up, lock her up. We are going down a bad path that you don't reverse from. And right now, we're trying to rest on the goodwill that Republicans can say that, but Democrats Democrats won't. Oh, I got to tell you, Democrats will adopt this at some point, too, if it's successful. And now you have both parties locking up prior administrations. You think you have crappy people in politics now. You just wait. What's interesting is is all this talk about impeaching Joe Biden next year from people like Ted Cruz. They're not even bothering to provide the reason at this point. It's just like we're, we're going to do it. Yeah, and they want to impeach Joe Biden, but yet defending Donald Trump's role on January 6th. So it's no longer, and Ted Cruz, this, you know, quote unquote, master of the Constitution, it's no longer about inciting, you know, it's no longer about high crimes and misdemeanors. It's about political disagreements now. And, yeah. you know, look, that's why we've got to change the system. And, and a quick plug out in Utah, you know, Evan McMullen is running for Senate against Mike Lee. And he's got a shot to win out there. And and for me, it's about, you know, disrupting a system to say, look, guys, we have to start attracting people in the middle because I'm going to tell you if you do that. Country First, uh, you know, my movement, Country1ST.com, we're launching something uh, at the end of the month called Primary First to convince mm. people about the importance of voting in a primary. I won an election, a primary, a member-member primary, because some of some of the trade unions showed up and voted for me. Um, voting in a primary can work. Because right now, about 10% of the country is picking your congressional representation. So just – I want to make it clear that we're, we're not taking the Ted Cruz comments out of, uh, out of context here. Uh, you know, what Ted Cruz made the headlines when he predicted that the House would impeach Joe Biden, whether – these were his words – whether it's justified or not because Democrats weaponized impeachment when they uh, accused Trump of, of wrongdoing. So, I mean, he's basically saying it's a partisan cudgel. They used it. We're going to use it again. So yeah. on a scale of one to 100, 100 being an absolute uh, locks a certainty, if, as we assume Republicans take control of the House in 2023, 
Um, what, what are the chances that they will impeach Joe Biden? Okay, so here I have to give you two answers. One, yeah. what are the prospects that articles of impeachment will be introduced? 100. That'll yeah, happen. Okay. Marjorie Taylor Greene already introduced yeah. like day one on Joe Biden. Yeah, that's easy. What, what are the chances they will move an impeachment proceeding? Actually I say 70. 70, 70 out of 100. Yeah. So you don't think that all Republicans will, will in lockstep vote yes on that? Um, I mean, maybe they all will. Who knows what the issue is? I have no confidence anymore at all. I, mean, I don't either. I, I am just broken down. Remember, Charlie, I'm I'm like the I'm like the number soothsayer. I'm I know. The guy that I know. Told you there'd be over a hundred. No, I understand, and and you were you were absolutely right about all of that. <laughs> well, Adam Kinzinger, good luck. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast again. You bet. Anytime. Thanks for doing what you do. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>